to Totalus Rankium. This week, William McKinley. Part one. Hello and welcome to American Presidents Totalus Rankium. I am Jamie. And I am Rob, ranking all of the presidents from Washington to Trump. And this is episode 25.1, William McKinley. And if you are um, just ploughing through the presidents and skipped our special Ed- Edward Norton episode, that wasn't an episode. <laughs> That'd be an amazing episode. <laughs> skipped our Emperor Norton episode, uh, you might not realise uh, that the coronavirus just hit, so we are recording this remotely. Yes. Which is why we might sound slightly different. I can't see um, you, Rob. No. I mean, I'm five weeks into this lockdown now. Oh, gosh, uh, yeah. But, uh, I'm just, this is my third yeah. week and I'm a bit, ooh, a bit bored now. Yeah. You doing anything to entertain yourself? A lot of drinking. Good, good. Healthy. Yeah, that works. Mm. Healthy, yeah. Fair enough. Right, okay. <laughs> po- positive start to today's episode. Yeah. Right, William McKinley. Uh, heard of him before? Absolutely not. Oh, isn't there a McKinley, there's a McKinley station in Star Trek, but that's the closest I've come to it. Right. Okay. I- Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea if that is linked in any way to Me neither. Kennedy. Probably not. Probably not, but who knows. Okay, well let's let's jump into this then, shall we? If you wanna start us off. Uh you wanna colour? Colour anything really. I mean just just give me something to work with. Okay, let's have let's have a tornado ripping through a farmstead. Nice, I like it. So open on a tornado ripping through a farmstead. Yeah. I think like start of twister yeah kind of. I, I can't remember if that opens on a tornado but i'm guessing it does probably because it's all about tornadoes but yeah so oh no wizard of oz let's go wizard of oz okay because we're sort of in the right time period not really um, <laughs> so start on a tornado ripping through a farmstead and then just keep pulling back from it and pulling back from it until it's in the distance quite small just going over some fields yeah but you can still hear the screams, yeah. even from this distance. Oh, no, no, it's it's, it's, it's in the distance. Okay. You, you can imagine screams if you want to. Yeah. It's really quite far away. Um, <laughs> and then it, it, it pans back over the shoulder of someone wearing a military uniform. And, uh, because it's panned backwards, you, you never get to see their face. Um, but you, you just got the back of someone's head and their shoulder looking at this tornado in the distance. And then as the person turns away... The camera turns with them, and you see just a big camp full of uh, soldiers, Union soldiers. Right. And this figure, you're almost in like a third-person computer game at this point okay. with the military camera, <laughs> yeah. because the camera just follows this figure in full military uniform through the camp. He's saying hello to people. Lots of people looking up and smiling. Yeah. There's a lot of smiling going on. Um, and this person who you're following is just waving and saying hello to pretty much everyone. And then he finally walks into his tent. And in the tent is a a young man, late teens, early 20s, full of hope on his face and a go-get-them attitude. Right. I assume he hasn't yet heard about the tornado. No, no that's in the distance. That's fine. Oh. I mean, or maybe you could ask about it. He looks up and says, sir, is the tornado close? And the figure we're following says, no, don't worry. It's bypassing us. <laughs> and then the young figure lets out a huge sigh and says, thank goodness, Major Hayes. Ooh. I was worried there for a moment. <gasps> Hayes. Oh, yeah. And then as he says that, it spins round and there is the grinning, happy face 
of haze. He just Aww. says the word splendid. Aww. And as he says the word splendid, McKinley part one smashes up on the screen. Oh, it's good to get him back again. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, Haze is back. Yes. So there you go. That's the opening of today's episode. Nice. I think you very skillfully yeah. interweave the tornado there. Not I like the way you didn't just brush it aside as well. Oh, no, no. I brought it back, you see. Yeah. But it wasn't <laughs> completely instrumental. I should probably point out that I have not read anywhere that the Ohio volunteers stationed in West Virginia or ever anywhere near a tornado. But okay. who knows? I'm not from America. In, in my head, uh, America's full of tornadoes. Yeah. All over the place. Yep. You can't move for them. Yeah, so there you go. Bound to have happened. Kansas. Kansas is where they have tornadoes. <laughs> yes, Oklahoma. They kind of... Yeah, we're, we're not near there. No, okay, right. But tornadoes move, tornadoes move about. They, well, they do, yeah. They're known for They're it. not static, yeah. are they? Exactly. They don't grow like trees. Yeah, it's all good. We've definitely got this right. Yeah. It's fine. History. Yeah, okay, right. Are you ready to begin? Oh, I'm ready. I've got my pen, I've got my book, everything. Okay, we start... In northeast Ohio, back in 1803, uh, James and Danny Heaton found ore that was lining Yellow Creek. Ore. Ore. They built a blast furnace along the shore, and they will go on to build the cannonballs that helped the Union win the war. If anyone is a Bruce Springsteen fan out there, you'll realise I am now just reading the lyrics to the song Youngstown. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I got excited. McKinley's born, like, right next to Youngstown. Okay. Uh, in, in a town founded by James Heaton, and there's a, a Bruce song all about this. And I went, oh, look, it's Youngstown. And it well, maybe that's playing in the background. You never know. Go and listen to that song. It's a very good song. It's on his um, Ghost of Tom Joad album. It's very good. What's it called again? Sorry? The Ghost of Tom Joad. The song is called Youngstown. Youngstown. Are you going to have a listen? Yeah, have a little listen. See how, see how good this song really is. Oh, Bruce Springsteen. Here we go. Let's have a, have a listen. Ooh. That wasn't it. <laughs> no, that's, that's an advert. Here in Northeast Ohio Back in 1803, James and Danny Heaton found the ore that was lined in Yellow Creek. They built a blast furnace here along the shore, and they made the cannonballs that helped the Union win the war. Here in Youngstown. That sounds really familiar. Yeah, yeah. What well, the, the lines? Yeah, it is. That's that's because it was that was us. Yeah, that's the start of this episode. Um, yeah. So there you go. We're in eighteen oh three. James and Danny Heaton. Right. They they find some ore. They do, and they build a blast furnace. And uh, yeah, the area starts to be built up. Um, James Heaton, a few years after this, built another blast furnace in uh, a nearby settlement. Uh, that then grew into a town. The town was known as Heaton's Furnace, which I think is a really cool that name a really for good a name. town. Yeah. yeah, but then they unfortunately changed the name to Niles Town, which is just not as good. That's really not. No, named after a Baltimore editor of uh, the uh, Niles Weekly Register, right? Which was a widely popular news magazine. It's just not as fun. It's really not. No, flash forward forty years to eighteen forty-three. Uh, and the region's starting to develop into an industrial powerhouse. Now, a couple of things happen in 43. First of all, the town changes its name once again. Uh, Niles Town doesn't sound naff enough, apparently, so <laughs> they change it to just Niles. Ooh, right. Which, yeah, ju- just Niles. 
That's awful. I, I just not. I mean, don't get me wrong. Niles from Frasier, the best, one of the best characters ever. Yeah. Niles from uh, the E Street Band, Bruce Springsteen, mm-hmm. brilliant guitarist. Uh, the, it's very Brucey this episode. Yeah, the Nile, uh, uh, very impressive river. Yeah, yeah. I should probably point out it's actually Niles rather than Niles with uh, Niles Laughlin. But anyway, the point is. Good name for some people, bad name for a town. Yes. That's what I'm sticking with. That's okay. All, all, right, for the, all right for a river as well, I suppose. <laughs> anyway, uh, Niles is small, only has three churches, three stores, and a blast furnace, uh, <laughs> a mill, and a nail factory, and a population of about 300 people. So a very, very small provincial sort of thing. Yeah, with a massive blast furnace and a huge nail factory. That's quite... <laughs> so don't think small little village no. thing. People living around the factory, basically. Yeah. Equivalent of Birmingham in the 1800s, like all factories, few people live in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that, that's the first thing that happens in 43, the change from Niles Town to Niles. The second thing that happens in Niles is the seventh of nine children is born into the McKinley family. Yeah. Uh, this is a boy called William McKinley, who we're doing our episode on today. Ah. Now, the father of this child was called William McKinley Senior. Of course. And he was an iron worker, just like his dad had been. <laughs> uh, the mother of the child was Nancy, who was also from an iron-making family, because if you were in Niles, you were somehow involved in the iron-making business. So she's a bit like an iron maiden, isn't she? She is an iron maiden. That's exactly what she is. Uh she listened to Iron Maiden, yep. and she kept an Iron Maiden in the shed. Yes. Well, there's lots of nails yeah. to use, so, you know, might as well. All good. Yeah, don't don't picture William McKinley Sr. as a, a poor, down-and-out factory worker, though. Uh, he'd actually done quite well for himself, and by this point managed several furnaces throughout the region. Oh, wow. So we're talking sort of middle to upper management here. Oh. Uh, apparently he still very much got involved in, like, the actual physical part of labour, just because there's only so many people and there's lots of work to do in the factories. So apparently he was quite a, a big, tough man who <laughs> chopped wood and mugged iron around, but he also ran the factories. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, he was also the treasurer of the local school district, so he was starting to like be, be a man of influence. Yeah. Oh, could, does he, has he got like a really strong northern Sheffield-style accent? Definitely. You're right, my son, William. You'll be an ironmonger just like me. You'll go into the factory. If you're not from the UK, uh, our centre of uh, iron making in this country was up north. So, yeah, that's why Jamie's thinking of northern accents. Yeah. Um, Game of Thrones accents. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Before everyone heard that accent and thought dragons, most people thought industrialisation. And cutlery, yeah. (laughs) Iron forks. (laughs) Um, so yeah, uh, William McKinley Sr., big fan of Shakespeare and Burns, and uh, he really made sure his home was well stocked with books and newspapers. He valued education. The McKinley family would gather each evening, apparently, and take turns in reading from these newspapers and books. That must be nice. Yeah, nice, nice. You don't often get that much now, do you? It's more of a, a social family, because, you know, no tablets, yeah. no phones. Everyone gathering together, trying to listen to the sounds of a four-year-old struggling through taming a shrew over the <laughs> sound of nails being made. Yeah. It was it was a nice family time. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Sounds good. Both not here, but quicker. Dink, dink, dink. <laughs> that you read Shakespeare. <laughs> use the hammering of the nails being made as like a metronome to, to yes. really get your pace going. See? 
That's not good. To be, was. not to be. That's my ambit <laughs> pentameter. <laughs> so, William Senior, uh, however, he was he was away for long periods of time because he supervised uh, other factories in the area that were a fair distance apart. So he'd spend several weeks at a time away from the home. Uh, either that or he was just trying to get away from the family, who knows? <laughs> yeah. So Nancy, mum, therefore, was the major force in William's upbringing. Uh, she had the final say on the children's education. Uh, William Senior just saying, okay, yeah, no, you make all the decisions, I'm busy running my factories. So Nancy believed very much that all her children should be very well educated. So for the first 11 years of William's life, he grew up in a small but industrialised village but then it was decided for the good of the children's education, perhaps the McKinleys should move to where there were better schools. Ah. Because the, the, the schools apparently weren't great in Niles. Do you think the, the father would find that very tricky? Kind of like, yeah, you know, but my work's here. Well, his work's all over the place. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he travels a lot. So, that's yeah, right, no, I think it's fine. So they decide to move to Poland. Not the country, I assume. It would be brilliant if it was, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's fine, no, Nancy. This... I'll just commute every day. Don't worry. <laughs> this is the nearby town of Poland. Okay. Um, yeah, not too far away. Uh, William later described his new home as, and I'll quote here, trim, neat, with its tasty white frame dwellings, <laughs> its dear old academy and village stores. Oh, it sounds nice, doesn't it? it? Sounds very picturesque. It does. Gives you a, a sense of what William McKinley was like when he was older as well. Oh dear. <laughs> the academy obviously is what brought the family there. Uh, and soon enough, William was in school, uh, finding mathematics, poetry, Greek, and Latin the subjects he did best at. Mm. He did his best work inside the classroom, apparently, uh, but was not, and I quote, indifferent to athletics of all kind. So he so, enjoyed sports, but he preferred studying. Yeah. He, he wasn't indifferent to them. Take it or leave it, really. Yeah. Uh, apparently, he would occasionally dance. Right. He was an occasional dancer, was McKinley, okay. as a child. I, I don't know what that means. It's just a line I came across um, <laughs> when one of his old teachers was talking about him. So maybe maybe he just broke into dance a lesson. <laughs> only for so. about 30 seconds. Yes, sir. I did my Greek essay in the medium of dance. Yeah, You're splendid. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm going to say he did that. Yeah. Then, in 1859, William was old enough to enter college. He, he was enrolled in the Allegheny College, if I'm pronouncing that in any way correctly, uh, in Meadsville, Pennsylvania, where he was noted for his winsome personality, apparently. However, the strong start soon fell apart. It's not clear uh, exactly what it was, either physical or mental health problems, most likely both, uh, but he started to retreat um, and was not well for a while. In fact, he later said, I felt so much discouraged that I seemed I would never look forward to anything again. Oh. I was discontented for many, many months. It seemed to me my whole life was to be spoiled by my unfortunate nervousness. Oh. So, yeah, full-on depression, struggling to concentrate, get anything done. Um, it also seemed to uh, affect his physical health as well. Things are not good for William when he joins college. Yeah. In fact, he was forced to take a break from his studies and headed back home. His health, uh, physical and mental, seemed to improve quite a bit uh, after a while, uh, but the family was struggling by this point. His father's businesses were in trouble, as were other family members' financial ventures. Money was tight for the first time in their lives. Oh yeah, one of his uh, brother-in-laws mentions how 
this was the hardest time in their lives. They had to all scrimp and save as a family. Oh dear. So uh, William couldn't go back to school, even if he wanted to, even if he was feeling better. He'd have to go out and make money for the family. So what do you do if you dropped out of college and you don't really have any uh, prospects? Law. Study law. No, no, oh, no. Oh, army, no. of course. No, no. Oh. Became a teacher, Jamie. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Become a teacher. Yeah, so he taught for a bit, and he also was the assistant to the postmaster of Poland, which sounds a lot more <laughs> impressive than yeah. it actually is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, I really hope it's the country, but I don't think it is. I'm, I'm assuming uh, it is for the rest of this episode. Yeah, definitely. So, 17-year-old William starts to feel better within himself, even if times are hard. He seems to take to the life of working better than when he was in college, and things seem to be improving for him personally. Uh, Partly because he had just met 16-year-old Linda Wadsworth. Wadsworth? Lydia, sorry. Lydia Wadsworth. Lydia Wadsworth. Wadsworth, which is a very English butler-sounding name, if ever you want one. Um, however, unfortunately, not long after this, the parents of Lydia, uh, who I assume were both butlers, uh, <laughs> found out about their meetings and forbid their daughter from ever seeing this young man ever again. Oh. And the relationship fell apart. But for a while there, there was a bit of a love interest. Oh. So when he wasn't teaching and assisting the post for an entire European country or chatting up young women, uh, William was heavily involved in the church. Uh, apparently, his mother and sisters had become so involved in the the Poland church that they essentially ran it, uh, apart from the actually preaching part. Yeah. So, yeah, all, all the admin and running of, of the place fell to the McKinley women. Hmm. Uh, Nancy hoped that her son might consider a path to become a Methodist bishop. This was the direction that Nancy wanted her son to go in. Uh, an opinion shared by their reverend... Uh, Aaron D. Morton. Uh, Morton was the religious leader for the region, uh, but also an active member of the region's underground railway, attempting to find safe passage for those uh, escaped slaves trying to get to Canada. So, yeah, he was doing that. And he said many of us thought he would become a minister, talking about McKinley. It just seemed an obvious way for this young uh, boy to go. So that's what everyone was expecting. But then something happened which changed McKinley's life forever. Um, Did he cease? Oh, uh, Civil War. Oh, yes. The Civil War erupts. Young William signed up to the Poland Guard. That's a bit uh, far away, isn't it? It's it's not going to get old. No. (laughs) Unfortunately, we don't see much of Poland after this. So this is the last time we can pretend to misunderstand and think that he's actually gone to Poland. Uh, but yeah, no, he's part of the Poland Guards now. Yeah, which is, yeah he's signed up. Uh, this was after Lincoln made his call for volunteers. So yeah, he decided he was going to do his bit for the country. He wrote to his sister telling her that it was his duty and saying that by the end of the war, she will definitely know that he didn't act foolishly and he'd made the right decision. Okay. Um, so, which implies some of his family weren't too keen on the idea of their son slash brother signing up for the army. Uh, But still, he's signed up now. The Poland Guard soon found themselves in Camp Jackson and formed into a new regiment and became, unfortunately, no longer the Poland Guard, but E Company, which is nowhere near as exciting. Though it does have the benefit of being the same company that is in band. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. And robots, so we... electronic, electricity, e-company. Yes, probably should call them Company E, because that's how I saw it written down, but I just thought e-company because of Band of Brothers. <laughs> so anyway, he's in e-company. Uh, they were then informed that they would not be voting for their own commanders, which was usual. Usually they'd get together, they'd choose someone to lead them. Yeah. Um, that had been going on for a while so far in the war, but then uh, the Union side realised that actually, we do need to win this war. Maybe we should start putting people in charge who know what they're doing, rather than just people who are the most popular within the new regiments. Well, there's an idea. Yeah. So instead, uh, the volunteers were told, no, we're going to choose your your commanders. One company refused uh, to begin with, but eventually it was accepted. Uh, Leading them would be Colonel Rosecrans, uh, with Matthews as the lieutenant colonel, and as major... A man named Rutherford B. Hayes. I remember him. Oh, yes. So, McKinley spent his time drilling uh, at least four hours a day. In his spare time, he read Byron, um, because he was at that age where holding out a book of Byron whilst everyone else is trying to sleep. Yeah. It just makes you feel feel clever, doesn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. so. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe he actually enjoyed Byron. Um, yeah, he, he read Byron, uh, and he wrote his diary... Uh, but unfortunately, we don't get a full detailed diary of the war from McKinley because he just gave up on it not long afterwards because the duties just became too much and he didn't have time to write his diary. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that stops fairly soon. Uh, anyway, the regiment were completely unprepared to head off for war. As you can imagine, America had not seen a war on this scale ever before and uh, no one was ready for the Civil War. And McKinley and the men around him didn't even have uniforms or weapons. That's a problem if you're fighting. Yeah, it literally was just a, a, a bunch of volunteers I mean, in a I'm field not being picky. in tents. I'm not trying to be picky here, but if you're being in an army, you really need a few weapons. Yeah, even I mean, uniforms are nice, but not necessary. Weapons kind of are. Uh, but no, they had nothing. Uh, after six weeks of this, eventually some muskets arrived. How many? Uh, there, there were quite a few muskets, to be fair, oh. but they were very old muskets. Ah. Uh, they were not in great condition. I'm imagining full-on blunderbuss kind of things. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, who knows? Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, they worked. They were weapons. But the soldiers were not happy and started talking very loudly about how they deserved better. They'd volunteered to fight for their country. Ooh. The least the government could do is provide decent weapons for them. The... Uh, Commanders soon gave orders, stop moaning about the weapons and accept the weapons seriously. What is this? Oh, yeah. The soldiers weren't too pleased and refused to take the weapons, and a standoff started. Then, Major General Fremont, if you remember, the uh, the first Republican to stand for president before Lincoln, right. he came to inspect the regiment, and uh, it was very hastily agreed upon that, look, okay, all of you pick up the weapons for the inspection because someone's coming in with a clipboard. Uh, it doesn't mean you're going to accept them, but can we all just pretend that we're not actually falling apart at the scenes in front of the Major General, please? And for the love of God, hold it the right way around. Yeah, come on. Just just for the looks of things, can you pick up your gun? <laughs> we're meant to be an army. So it was decided, okay, everyone will pick up their musket and they will stand in formation and be inspected. Uh, McKinley himself was personally inspected by Fremont, who walked in front of him, sort of punched him in the chest and declared he was fit to be a soldier in that kind of way you see in many army films. Then McKinley doubled over in pain, whimpered a bit. (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm guessing it was like one of those sort of light sort of punch, not a full on just yeah. trying to collapse the other man's lungs kind of punch. <laughs> but uh, who knows? Who knows? Um, yeah, anyway, Fremont uh, inspected the troops um, and then went on his way. And uh, most companies then sort of went, oh, fine, we'll take the muskets. It's fine. It was only E Company who refused the guns still. So the one with McKinley in. Uh, A very angry Lieutenant Colonel Matthews called them out, uh, lined them up and informed them they would all be shot if they keep this up. We're at war. This is mutiny. What are you playing at? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So it was then decided that 10 of the best shooters would be taken out of E Company go and actually use the guns and then report back to the company and uh, hopefully say, yeah, they're all right and the guns will be accepted. So that, right. that was the compromise reached. As E Company waited, a major Hayes suddenly appeared before them. Uh, hello! Hello there! Hayes did not shout at them. He did not threaten them. He simply told them that many of the most decisive battles in history had been won with rudimentary weapons. Uh, look at Lexington and Bunker Hill during the Revolution, he pointed out. In fact, look at the entire Revolutionary War. And then he said, and I quote, Should we hesitate at the very start of another struggle for liberty and union because we're not pleased with our muskets? Ooh. McKinley wrote afterwards that Hayes Manor, and I'll quote him here, was so generous and his relations with the men so kind and yet always dignified that he won my heart almost from the start. From that hmm. moment on, our confidence in our leader never wavered. So, uh, yeah, Hayes, and just his uh, niceness, won over young hmm. McKinley, it did. Yeah, a bit of kindness gets you everywhere. Yeah. Then the sharpshooters came back and admitted, actually, yeah, these guns look a bit rough, but they shoot fine. It's like I pointed one in front of me and shot, and the bullet came out and hit the thing in front of me. So, uh, What more do you want? Yeah, <laughs> it worked. Uh, so in the end, the company accepted the guns, and the, and, and the problem was over. Soon after this, uh, they moved to Western Virginia. Still not technically West Virginia yet, but it will be soon. Uh, it wasn't long after that that the regiment saw their first battle. This is Carnifex Ferry. Now, before the battle, McKinley was struggling to walk because the amount of marching they'd been doing, many of the men were not used to this much walking uh, and Ooh. had huge blisters on their feet. Uh, McKinley apparently Ooh. was very kindly offered a horse, um, oh. so he didn't have to walk the whole day. But that, that's how bad it had got. Uh, but still, as the battle started, McKinley was back on his feet um, and he found himself in one of the four companies that were being led personally by Major Hayes. Oh, okay. Uh, And this means, much, much to my my delight, that I got to jump right back into Hayes' diaries. Yes! Which is great. And I'll quote, My little detachment did as much of the real work, hard work, as anybody. Hayes and his four companies, including McKinley, were originally held in reserve, but it, they were then selected to attempt to flank the Confederate forces. So McKinley is in the action early on. In fact, McKinley wrote, We went on quick time through the meadows, cornfields and laurel thickets, over rocks and deep precipices. All of this was on their knees or hunched over, uh, doing sort of army crawls, I'm guessing. They're just trying to sneak round, trying not to be seen, basically. Yeah. Uh, However, they soon realised that they could not get into the position where they could flank the Confederate forces. So they decide to head back. There's nothing they can do. On their way back, they suddenly heard a noise to the right of them. 
Hayes pulled out his revolver, and McKinley and the rest of the men got ready to be ambushed. This did not look good. There was a tense moment when the four companies of the 23rd ran into the 28th Regiment, which happened to be led by one of Hayes' closest friends, a fellow lawyer called Mark Bright. In fact, I'll quote Hayes here. It so happened, curiously enough, that I was the extreme right man of my body, and Mark Bright was the left man of his. We had a jolly laugh, and introductions <laughs> to surrounding officers as partners, etc. So yeah, middle of the battlefield, Hayes bumps into a friend, and they just have a, a bit of a laugh and a joke. Uh, <laughs> yeah, McKinley later said he'd never forget the way Hayes greeted Mark Bright, and how Hayes was joking about how Mark Bright was forgiven for having run away from the law office back home. So you get the impression the soldiers are all bricking it, thinking they're about to be ambushed, and they all just look at Hayes, who's laughing and joking away. And it made an impression. Yeah, it would. It would. This man does not fear death. (laughs) Ultimately, the Union forces did enough to drive back the Confederate ones in this battle. Uh, It was a fairly light skirmish in the grand scheme of the war, uh, but an important one for young McKinley. In fact, I quote him again. This was our first fight. It gave us confidence in ourselves and faith in our commander. We learned that we could fight and whip the rebels on their own ground. Hmm. So it's not long after this that he was assigned to the Brigade Quartermaster Office. It's not clear, but perhaps Hayes had something to do with this. He wrote to the colonel around this time, Keep your eyes on that young man. There's something in him. Which, uh, (laughs) it sounds like it could be medical advice, but... (laughs) I'm guessing it was just a a recommendation. So yeah, the war for McKinley changed quite dramatically. Instead of hours of drilling, uh, he was suddenly dealing with shipments and receipts. By halfway through 62, he was promoted to quartermaster sergeant. Uh, Because of this, he's no longer expected to be on the front line. Uh, He no longer needs to perform guard duty. Uh, He often had a horse uh, that he could ride instead of going on foot when they went places. Uh, and he also had a reserved space on a wagon for his personal items. So he's going up in the world. Yeah. Uh, that said, I mean, it's not without complete danger, um, being the sergeant quartermaster. He would be expected to go to the front line and resupply the men and go out foraging for food in areas held by the enemy. But his survival chances have significantly improved. Well, he's got a horse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a meal, that. Uh, well, I mean, he's in charge of all the food, so he's not going to go hungry. Well, yeah. <laughs> One of the parts of the job. Yeah. So the, the regiment were involved in several skirmishes as it pulled east to attempt to join up with Pope's army in Virginia. Uh, but as we saw in Hayes' episode, the forces were delayed and instead were sent to cut off General Lee, who was advancing into Maryland. Ooh. They encountered the Confederates on the 14th of September in the Battle of South Mountain. Now, you may remember, although I know you won't, because why would you? Uh, But listeners who have maybe listened to the episode more recently uh, may remember that this is the battle where Hayes was shot and had a lovely conversation with the Confederate soldier who was lying in the mud next to him. Oh, yes! As bullets passed over their heads, and I quote, pretty warm. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got to that point. Uh, Right. As we saw, this was a Union victory, but at a heavy cost. Uh, Hayes survived... Um, and was taken, if you remember, to be snug as a bug in a rug uh, with some citizens that were living in a nearby town. That is uh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, McKinley, however, carries on with the regiment. And if South Mountain had seemed bad, it was just a warm-up for the next battle, because 
a few days later, uh, the Battle of Antietam happens. This is one of the worst battles in the entire war, with over 20,000 casualties and at least 3,500 men lying dead on the field by the end of it. Wow, okay. Now, I don't have time to go into all the details of uh, this battle, so I'm just going to focus on what McKinley did. Um, McKinley's regiment had fought their way to a defensive position and then had to dig in. Uh, Huge simplification there, but that's all you really need to know. Yeah. This also happened before supplies could be set in place, uh, and the regiment were in place at 2am with no food. Twelve hours later, the order still had not been given to give the attack, but it was going to come soon. And the men, understandably, were flagging. They'd been awake all night and they'd eaten nothing. Uh, So apparently, McKinley, realising that when the uh, attack order came, it would be a weak and demoralised force that went forward, uh, decided himself to get food to the men. So he headed two miles back to where the supplies were being kept and started loading a wagon with meat and beans and crackers and coffee and other things that they had. Right. Uh, Then McKinley and another man named John Harvey set off for the front line in their wagon full of supplies. That's very risky. Oh, it is definitely very risky. Uh, They were going down a narrow track uh, through a heavily wooded area uh, when a Union officer and a few men suddenly came across them and told them, no, no, don't come down this road. Turn back. The Confederates... (laughs) confederates have the road um further up and they've set up a blockade there's no way through so yeah you need to go and then the officer and his men headed off uh through the the woods trusting that mckinley would turn around because that's the only thing to do however the track was a narrow one and there was no way they could turn the wagon around so all they could do was abandon it uh mckinley decided not to do that however uh, John Harvey wrote about it later. The regiment was almost in sight of us, and Sergeant McKinley was so anxious to carry out his point and give the half-starved boys something to eat. He made one more appeal to me to run the blockade. He himself risking his life in taking the lead. I followed, and horses going full speed passed the blockade. We had the back end of the wagon shot away by small cannon shots. In a very few minutes, we were safe in the midst of the half-famished regiment. Ooh. Yeah, so they, they just ran the blockade, smashed through it. Yeah. I'm <laughs> full Hollywood. So I'm guessing it was on a slight hill, so the wagon and the horses left left the ground for a good few slow motion seconds. Oh, yeah, yeah. As they went through. Horses looking yeah. terrified. Close up of Confederate soldiers just shooting the back of the wagon and then looking at yeah. each other. And one of them hits the other one around the back of the head after they realised they got away. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. There you oh, go. Okay. Yeah, a little bit of a hero moment for McKinley there. Yeah. Nice. Um, after Antietam, which was a victory, but as I said, a very hard one, one uh, McKinley and his regiment were pulled back to West Virginia. Uh, it's around this time Hayes, who's still snug as a bug in a rug, remember, yeah. Uh, yeah. and recovering from his gunshot wound, received a letter from a Dr. Webb who worked in the 23rd Regiment. Um, this letter informed Hayes that the regiment were being pulled back to West Virginia, but he also wrote, and I quote here, Our young friend William McKinley, commissary sergeant, would be pleased with a promotion and would not object to your recommendation for the same. Without wishing to interfere in the matter, it strikes me he is about the brightest chap spoken of for the place. And it would appear that Hayes agreed, as did several of us, because McKinley was soon promoted to second lieutenant. 
He was also given orders to go back to Ohio and recruit some troops. And But, I mean, essentially this is a go home, visit your family, do, do a little bit of work quietly there and then come back. So, yeah. yeah, he gets a bit of a break. He goes home and he visits his family. And when he came back, um, he found that Hayes was also back in the regiment and very pleased to see McKinley. In fact, hmm. he wrote in his diary, Our new second lieutenant, McKinley, returned today, an exceedingly bright, intelligent and gentlemanly young officer. He promises to be one of our best. Oh, so, yeah, high praise. Yeah. Now, McKinley and the men saw very little action for a while, uh, but in his new position, McKinley became closer with Hayes, uh, and he starts to appear in Hayes' diaries more often. Trust me, I spent a long time scouring Hayes' diaries. I'm fairly certain I found every entry involving McKinley, and much to my disappointment, there wasn't any funny stories or notes that he made about McKinley. Most of it was, had dinner with McKinley, or McKinley popped in to say hello, so... Yeah, but we can assume they had many a good conversation. Hayes then put McKinley in charge of the entire brigade supplies uh, as its quartermaster, so he's now like quartermaster in charge. Uh, he's, yeah. in fact, in charge of the clerks, uh, a carpenter, a forage master, which is a brilliant title. <laughs> that is wonderful. In my head, the forage master's just wearing a big green cloak and only ever whispers, and you never know if he's in the room or not. <laughs> You just turn around and just go, oh, Forge Master, you're back. And then he just pulls out some pears or something. <laughs> I've got a different view. I've got somebody wearing like a brown jumper and walking, like a like an old hill walker with a white beard. <laughs> Very cheerful, can identify birds and everything. Yeah. He's like, oh, I've got some lovely moss here on this rock. That'd be great for us to eat. That can be a lovely stew for us all. <laughs> and everyone hates him because of it. <laughs> and he's vegetarian as well. So he doesn't forage for animals. It's just, you know, yeah. moss and... Maybe he's just like a very polite and English Bear Grylls. Is Bear Grylls English? I have no idea. Yeah, yes, yeah. Okay. Anyway, so anyway, he's in charge of the Forage Master. I, I'm going to say there were two Forage Masters, one that you described and one that I described, and they took it in turns, one day on, one day off. No one's fully sure if the guy in the, the cloak is actually just the, the other guy in the jumper, just with a cloak on. No one knows. Yeah, yeah, mysterious. Anyway, I'll continue the list. Uh, the next one's not quite as impressive. He was in charge of a wagon master, ah, which sounds like a very grand title to give yourself as the person who owns the wagon. Uh, I'm guessing the person who repairs the wagons and stuff. Important job in the army. Um, yeah. Also, another master here. Do you want to guess what the next master is? Oh, master of food. No, no. Master of condiments. <laughs> no, that would be good. The harness master. Oh, well, that's that's a very different career option, I feel. <laughs> yeah. I, he only wears belts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> His entire clothing is just made up of harnesses. Yeah. Oh. Uh, he's also Ooh. in charge of two blacksmiths and five teamsters. Teamsters. Wagon drivers. People oh, transporting okay. the goods. Um, so, yeah, basically, uh, the the logistics of uh, the regiment basically go through McKinley now. Now, McKinley saw very little action throughout 63. Uh, there is one point uh, where Hayes' wife, Lucy, came to visit. Remember she came to visit occasionally? Yeah. Yeah, one time their child died and Hayes yeah. said it was a splendid visit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I'm guessing this is a different time she visited uh, because she borrowed McKinley's horse... Uh, and went off for a ride, which is nice. Oh. Yeah, that's just Pleasant. 
one of those small little details I gleaned from Hayes's diaries. That story goes nowhere, but I just thought I'd sprinkle it in for a bit of flavour. Oh. Anyway, early in 64, the army was reorganised and Hayes's brigade was placed under General George Crook and McKinley was placed on Hayes' staff. So they're getting even closer now. Uh, yeah. He was still in this position in July of 64 during the Battle of Kernstown. Uh, the Union forces were outnumbered three to one, and due to some misinformation, they were just not prepared for this fight. Right. Uh, they got caught out of position. They were always going to lose this one, but they had yeah. no choice. They had to fight. The battle began, but one of the Union regiments was out of position. McKinley was ordered to bring it into place. Now, the only way to get to the regiment was through open fields in front of the Confederate line. So, again, rousing music slow motion time here, McKinley <laughs> rode his horse through the field with shells landing to his left and his right. Did his horse rear up at one point? McKinley leans forward, sword in the air, proud look on his face, cape billowing in the wind. Oh, yeah, he but, definitely uh, had a cape. In fact, you you see all of this from Hayes' perspective, who's watching from a hill, and you just see McKinley riding, and then a big explosion and lots of dust and smoke, and you can't see anything. But as the smoke clears, you just see the horse rearing and the cape billowing. Oh, yes. Good stuff. Splendid, Hayes. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, in real life, he was probably just swearing to himself the whole way. Uh, and sweating a lot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then eventually he manages to get through. Uh, yeah, he, he got past uh, the danger zone, as as he called it himself. Danger uh, zone. Yeah, and uh, gave the ordinance to the regiment there, who were then able to reposition, uh, which is good, but didn't help because they still lost. Um, yeah. But Hayes yeah. described uh, McKinley's actions as very gallant, which is nice. Good, good yeah. Uh, after the defeat and retreat, McKinley was promoted to captain uh, and moved onto General Crook's staff. Uh, so he's moved away from Hayes. In fact, Hayes writes, I was sorry to lose McKinley, but I couldn't, as a friend, advise him to do otherwise. So as Aww. you can see, it's, uh, the two are close now. It's no longer seen as officer and underling. Uh, Hayes yeah. is seeing young McKinley as a friend. Oh. Uh, then September 64 rolls round. Uh, this is the Battle of Berryville. Uh, McKinley had his horse shot from under him, but he was personally unhurt. Uh, and then for the next couple of months, McKinley was involved in several more battles, all very hard fought. Uh, if you remember from Grant's episode, uh, this by this point Grant's in charge of the Union forces, and he was okay. starting to be accused of being a butcher. Uh, this is where the body counts really start to rise. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, in one battle, uh, McKinley again was ordered to go and reposition a division who weren't quite in the right place. Uh, so he wrote to the commander of the second division and told the commander that they had to move. However, there was a debate on which route to take, and the officer said he would only move if a specific route was given as an order by Crook. Right. Now, McKinley had not been given an order for the route, so in theory, should have rode back to get the order. However, he weighed up the options and chose a route himself and said, and I quote, by order of General Crook, I command you, and then told them which way to go. Now, had the manoeuvre not have been a complete success, he probably would have gotten into quite a bit of trouble for this, because he made up orders in his general's name. Um, yeah. But... It, 
the route that was chosen turned out to be a good one and the uh, division was uh, put in the correct place quickly. So it worked out all right. Good. Uh, a good example of it's fine to break the rules as long as the results are fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, then October 64, uh, McKinley takes place in his last significant battle of the war. Uh, he's involved in a lot more than I've covered, by the way, but there's no way to go into all of the detail. Yeah. Uh, but this battle is uh, the Battle of Cedar Creek. Uh, by this time, he'd been promoted once again and was now a, a brevet major, so a temporary major. Um, so he's doing all right. Mm. He survives this battle, um, and I mean, he doesn't know it himself that it's his last battle, but there you go. It's, it's, things are looking good for him. Uh, sh- shortly after this, it's election day, and at the age of 21, McKinley voted for the first time. Uh, He, Hayes, Crook and Sheridan, um, another famous general who I've not really talked Mm. about, but anyway, together they all went and used an ambulance that was being used as a polling booth. And uh, McKinley, unsurprisingly, voted for Lincoln. Now, not long after this, uh, Crook was captured by Confederate forces. Uh, Again, if you remember Hayes' episode, he finds this very amusing. Um, (laughs) Because apparently Crook was constantly talking about how vigilant everyone always had to be. Um, and then he was captured himself. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. Uh, so McKinley was moved to work on the staff of four different generals in the space of two weeks as they tried to find a place for him, uh, but eventually landed with General Carroll. Uh, however, it's not long after this that Lee surrenders to Grant, and the war is over. Ah, good. Uh, McKinley was encouraged to stay in the army as a lieutenant, uh, but he decided that, no, the war's over now, it's time to go home at the age of 22. Wow. Yeah, all of that, and he's only 22 years old. Oh, by the age of 22, I could... Well, nothing, really. No, I think I just about figured out how to go out and do a job. So, yeah, back in Poland, he decides not to go back to the college that he was attending before the war. Um, As we saw, he'd already kind of dropped out anyway. Um, And also, he'd made connections during the war, uh, so he hoped to do a bit better than going to college. Maybe he could just start his career. And uh, this works out. He very quickly got a job in a law office and began studying. And then, within the year, uh, perhaps using some of those connections during the war, he was able to attend the uh, Albany, New York Law School. Uh, Okay. Yeah, a quite prestigious law school in in the capital of New York. I knew he'd get into law at some point. Of course he got into law at some point. I can't remember the last one who didn't get into law. Uh, (laughs) Grant? So yeah, he was was at Albany New York Law School for less than a year before he was admitted to the bar. Um, So yeah, nice and quick, he becomes a lawyer. Yeah. And obviously... He decides to open up his own law firm uh, in Canton, Ohio. So he's still close to home uh, in in the city of Canton. He and his partner did very well for themselves over the next few years. Uh, Hmm. In fact, McKinley was able to buy up an entire block of buildings, uh, which he then rented out for a healthy profit. In 1867, his good friend and old mentor, Hayes, was nominated for governor of Ohio, which obviously gives McKinley even more connections. Uh, McKinley gave speeches for uh, Hayes um, during this time, and to McKinley's delight, Hayes wins. Well, he he said earlier he was quite well, he he spoke quite well, and people liked him. So that's 
Yeah. Probably yeah. leads him to his good speaking, his good oracy. Yes, yeah, no, uh, he gave a good speech, apparently he did. Perhaps this is what gives McKinley the idea to get into politics, although it was probably always the plan. Um, either way, in 69, McKinley ran for and got the position of Stark County Prosecutor. Uh, nice. Now this was usually seen as a safe uh, Democratic uh, seat. Um, in fact, McKinley was more running for it for the experience of running. Uh, many people did not expect him to get it at all. Uh, yeah. But to many people's surprise, uh, he got the seat. Uh, it made some in the uh, state's Republican Party take notice of this young friend of Hayes. Uh, maybe he's going places. Yeah. Uh, that said, it was a safe Democratic seat, and uh, he lost re-election two years later in 71, but it was impressive he got oh. it in the first place. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, still, McKinley's probably not too upset. Um, his firm is doing very well, he's starting to make some serious money, and he had met somebody. Ooh. Oh yes, uh, the Saxtons were a prominent family in Canton. That uh, granddad John Saxton had founded the city's only newspaper, and uh, his hmm. son had become a prominent banker. Uh, he and his wife Catherine then had a daughter called Ida, who currently is in her early 20s. Yeah. Uh, Ida and uh, McKinley met in 67 during a picnic. Yeah, they did. <laughs> 1867, I should probably clarify. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... Ida was then off on a grand tour around Europe, which was a very popular thing for the elite of America to do at the time. Um, so she yeah. was going to be gone for a couple of years exploring Europe. However, once she came back, uh, she got a job as a cashier in the, one of her father's banks, uh, which is a job at the time usually reserved for men. So this was seen as a quite impressive or just scandalous, depending on how sexist you were. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, she and William met once more, and soon were engaged, and then married in January of 71. And Ida Aww. was soon pregnant. And little Katie was born that December. So, uh... Oh, they got a kid. Yeah, everything's nice, isn't it? Oh, don't say that. That implies well, bad things. Everything's nice. Wait. It's all good. Yeah, but... You asked a question at the end of it. Business doing well, new wife, yeah. new child, friends with oh. the governor, going places. Who dies? Let's find out, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> when Katie uh, was two years old, Ida became pregnant again. See? Yeah. It's fine. It's all good. Um, oh, no. While Ida was pregnant, Ida's mother fell ill. And uh, days before she was due to give birth, her mother died. Oh. A distressed Ida then went through a very troubled labour. Um, the child, also called Ida, uh, was born, uh, but was very sickly and died four oh. months later. No. Yeah, Ida spiralled. Um, being a deeply religious family, she fully believed that God must be punishing her for something. Her spiralling mental state then started to um, impact her physically, and um, she developed epilepsy at this time, and also the veins in her legs would start to swell up, causing her a lot of pain. Oh, gosh. Yeah. She became utterly convinced that Katie was going to be taken next. Uh, she spent hours weeping over the possibility of her only surviving child's death. Uh, this affected little Katie, 
who was getting just about old enough to understand what was going on around her. Uh, in fact, once apparently uh, an uncle suggested that they go for a walk in the garden to get some fresh air. And little Katie said, and I quote, if I go out into the yard, God will punish my manor some more. Oh, that's not okay. That's not okay. It gets worse. Um, Yeah, because it turns out that Ida's fears were actually completely well-founded. Because in 75, little Katie suddenly developed typhoid fever and died within days. Oh. Yeah, uh, Ida just breaks at this point. Um, her mother and her two children die within a handful of years. Uh, her mental and physical health just falls apart to the point that it was feared she had brain damage from the seizures. Yeah, so she was very heavily medicated uh, because that's what you did back then and still today. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, she was essentially just sedated for the rest of her life with uh, large quantities of sedatives. So um, that was the uh, the mid-70s for the McKinley family. Not a pleasant time. Um, as for William, I mean, uh, as we'd already seen, he'd already suffered from depression before the war. Mm. Now, there's no mention of this during the war that I found. It would appear that the war, uh, actually for him personally, mentally did him some good because it gave him a focus. Uh, despite all the horribleness. But the death of his children brought it all back. It hits him very hard. Uh, Not as bad as Ida, uh, but it's still not good. Apparently he withdrew, uh, became very guarded with his speech. Uh, He went through a period of forgetting important details and cases that he was meant to be um, prosecuting or defending. Um, And he'd often just gaze off into nothing at all uh, in the middle of conversations. So um, not, not nice. No. Oh, However, that's very sad. Yeah. However, unlike Ida, uh, he at least had work to take his mind off things, and as is with life, things move on, and uh, he starts to think about his career again. Uh, a case came to him in '76 of 33 miners who were imprisoned for rioting during a strike. Uh, McKinley was able to get all of all but one of them off, and then refused to take payment. Mm-hmm. Um, from the down-on-their-look workers. Oh, that'll that'll bode well in the future, I imagine. Oh, yes, there's a reason why I'm mentioning it. Uh, The name McKinley was soon well-known by the workers of the county. This becomes Mm. very useful later on. Then, his friend and mentor, Hayes, becomes the president, as we have seen. Yay! And this coincided with McKinley moving through the ranks as a politician, because... At the same time as Hayes running for president, McKinley runs for a seat in the House. Yeah. Uh, and he gets it. So there you go. He's now uh, in Congress. Brilliant. In Washington, McKinley found himself in the minority party, and therefore, as a new man in the House, was given no important roles at all, uh, because why would he be? Uh, but he apparently worked hard and got on with his job. Um, there's actually very little to say of him at this time, as is often the case when people become a congressman (laughs) Uh, you tend to just work hard and live in washington and not do much else but work and go to parties in the evening yeah Uh, you'd think that being good friends with the president would help him out uh at this time Uh, but if you remember hayes had won his presidency after some dodgy dealings in the committee um and he was not a well-respected man in the capital uh so his friendship with hayes opened few doors apparently uh, one door it did open, though, obviously, was the door to the White House itself. 
Uh, and William and Ida were frequent guests to Hayes and even stayed in the mansion for two weeks looking after the Hayes children as uh, Hayes and Lucy took a break. So, yeah, so that's nice. Again, reading Hayes's diaries, there's a few mentions of uh, McKinley and uh, Ida coming round for, yeah. for dinner and it being very nice. But that's not mm. to say that Ida's suddenly feeling better. Um, no, of course not, of course not. Uh, no, William did not have much of a social life at all because apparently he spent most of his evenings caring for Ida, who was still very much a, a mess, uh, understandably so. Uh, she, yeah. she, she just simply wasn't up for the high society of Washington and just kept to herself apart from occasion going to the White House. William, however, did manage to make some friends, and according to some, it was William's devotion to Ida that won him round to many people. Uh, they, they noticed how much he cared for his wife and figured he must be a decent guy. Uh, now, despite not having any important committee positions, the Democrats spotted McKinley as one to watch and therefore one to bring down. He might be a problem in the future. So, um, because he was friends of the president um, and also then was also close to Garfield, who was just been elected to become the next president, uh, McKinley was clearly a rising star for the Republicans. So the Democrats sought to de-seat him, get him out of Congress. Uh, yeah. What's the best way to get someone out of Congress? Kill them. Yes, but they don't go for that. Uh, oh. <laughs> no, because this is... Vote, vote them out. Lies. Gerrymandering. That's the one. Yes. Uh, McKinley, as I've said before, came from a strongly Democratic area. Uh, therefore, the Democrats pushed hard gerrymandering McKinley's area in an attempt to drive him out. Uh, but it didn't work. McKinley was just too popular despite being a Republican. Uh, partly uh, the name he'd built up for himself, defending the workers. Um, oh. In fact, Hayes wrote in his diary, and I'll quote, Oh, the good luck of McKinley. He was gerrymandered out and then beat the gerrymander. We all enjoyed it as much as he did. <laughs> Which is great. Hayes, yeah, was, Hayes wasn't annoyed that the Democrats were gerrymandering. No, he just found it delightful that McKinley defeated it. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, Garfield became president and then he was shot and t then took 80 days to die. Arthur became president afterwards uh, and it became very clear that the half-breeds were going to push for Blaine from Maine to be nominated next. Sorry, uh, you, you shocked me when he says he got shot until eight. I thought you were talking about McKinley for a second. I was like, what? But no, I, I, I'm with you. No, Garfield. Garfield was shot yeah, and died. Yeah. yeah, I'm just keeping you up to date with what's going on as uh, McKinley is working in Congress. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, McKinley's just getting on with his work, basically, whilst all this chaos is happening around him. Uh, he was selected as a delegate for that year's national convention, so he's, he's starting to become more important. In fact, his standing rises within the party over the next few years. Uh, in 89, he was one vote from being elected Speaker of the House. Uh, so, I mean, as you can see, very much rising star. Uh, but uh, because he lost... He was instead offered the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, uh, the highest right. profile chair to, to hold. Uh, and this is where we first came across McKinley and Harrison's episode. Uh, okay. As in Benjamin Harrison, obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah. When we dealt with the McKinley tariff. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's because we talked about McKinley tariff, and that is this McKinley. Um, now, don't worry. 
I, I took a while thinking about this. Uh, there were different ways I could go. And in the end, I decided we're not going to take a deep look at the tariff. Um, oh, good. Yeah, uh, no, we're, we're not. It's very hard to find a biography about McKinley that isn't literally over 50% talking about these tariffs. Wow. In fact, I, well, I was going to say, the last episode was quite tariff heavy. Yeah, well, I could tell you lots of facts, such as, um, here's some if you want some. After 550 amendments, the Tariff Act of 1890 was passed and increased average duties across imports from 38% to 49.5%. In an attempt to stimulate the infant domestic tin plate industry, the Act raised the duty level from 30% to 70%. Oh, thank goodness. There's chapters upon chapters of this stuff. Um, I'll be honest, I just don't think it's that interesting. (laughs) We're not going to dwell on it. I mean, it is important. But important does not mean the same as interesting. And uh, we're looking at how interesting the president's lives were. I don't think we need to go into a huge amount of detail here. Uh, That said, it is an important factor in McKinley's political rights. So I am going to do a brief overview and give you a bit of a reminder. Because for you, it's a long time ago we uh, recorded the last episode on a president. And so you've probably forgotten what's going on with these tariffs. So for a small reminder here hugely simplified. So the Democrats at this time want to lower the tariffs and the Republicans want to raise the tariffs. Right. The Democrats argued that lowering the tariffs would lower the national surplus. Remember, the government's making too much money. Uh, Yeah. So if you lower the tariffs, we'll make less money and also everything will become cheaper for everyone because there's less tax on everything. Uh, Yeah, cheaper. Yeah, in particular, this will help people working in agricultural industries, um, rather than manufacturing ones, because the tariffs were higher in the manufacturing uh, industry. Now, the Republicans argued that rising the tariffs would also lower the national surplus, because the tariffs would be so high, fewer people will be buying things, so we'll make less money. Uh, not only that, it will protect US jobs, because more people will be buying things from American businesses, so Americans will still have work. So those right. were the, the two main arguments between the two parties at this time. Now, as Fair the enough. head of the Ways and Means Committee, when the tariff bill comes through, it's McKinley's name that's on the bill. Now, this doesn't mean that he agreed with everything in it. In fact, he states afterwards that uh, it's a committee. There are many things I disagreed with, even though it's my <laughs> bill. Uh, but that said, he was broadly happy with bringing in the highest tariffs that the country had ever seen. The Republicans wow. okay. went tariff happy. Now, the McKinley uh, Act also gave the president the power to reinstate tariffs on some goods that had been removed from the list. Now, to put that simply, uh, President Harrison could demand certain things when trading with other countries, and then be able to threaten to place a tariff on goods that came from that country as a, a bit of a bargaining chip slash bargaining stick to beat people with. Uh, is is that similar to what Trump was doing with China? It's not quite the same. Yes, we're in the same ballpark. Uh, and again, we'll, right. we'll get to that in Trump's episode. Uh, but yeah, but for example, um, sugar, tea, and coffee were not taxed when they came into the country. They weren't. Uh, they didn't have a tariff on them. Uh, this was to keep uh, these things that people enjoyed and liked cheaper, so everyone was just a bit happier. But now the Harrison government could threaten companies in South America where these products were coming from, that they would place tariffs on tea, sugar and coffee uh, unless you agree with this deal. And therefore, 
people in America would stop buying things from those South American countries. Now, there have been right. earlier examples, but here we really see the starts of uh, the United States using their economy to dominate other countries. We're not going to use the word bully, well, but... Keep, keep an eye but, on this. No keep an eye on it. It's, it's a trend that, let's just say, uh, grows a little bit. and uh, Never stops. Never stops, no. Um, we really are now at the point where um, you can no longer argue that the United States is the plucky underdog country. Uh, yeah, they're just not in that status anymore. They they still are looking at the grand empires of uh, Europe warily, um, but uh, it's yeah, they are definitely dominating very successfully countries around them. Yeah. Anyway, as we saw in Harrison's episode, uh, this bill hugely backfires on the Republicans. The public, seeing the prices of goods in general rise did not care about job protection anymore. Uh, They were already struggling to eat. Many people in the country were starving. Uh, Working conditions were awful. For the average person, life was tough. Oh, no. um, Yes, we need a job, but what's the point of having a job if you work all day, ridiculous hours, and then you still can't afford to eat because prices are going up? Well, yeah. Yeah. So the Republicans were reduced in the House from 171 seats to 88 Wow. Yeah, these were the midterms, and they were wiped out utterly. Gosh. Huge defeat. Uh, McKinley himself had an uphill battle, obviously. Uh, Not only was his district gerrymandered once more, um, but the biggest issue of these midterms literally had his name on it. He was McKinley. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so he spent his time trying to convince the constituents in his area uh, that the McKinley tariff was a good thing. In fact, I'll quote him. The tariff was framed for the people as a defence to their industries, as a protection to the labour of their hands, as a safeguard to the happy homes of American working men, and as security to their education, their wages, and their investments. It will bring this country a prosperity unparalleled in our own history and unrivaled in the history of the world. And then probably throw a cabbage and someone else shouted that <laughs> word. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, most simply looked at rising prices around them and simply did not believe McKinley. It's like, well, you say this, but life's hard and things are expensive and we don't like it. Well, yeah. It did not help uh, that one very underhand, but I'll, I've got to admit it, ingenious Democratic campaign <laughs> trick here. Uh, was to send young boys house to house, pretending to just be peddling goods. So they turn up at your door with a tray full of things, right? Uh, general food goods or uh, just knickknacks that you'd normally need to buy. Yeah. So they turn up at your door, offer to sell you something, um, and soon it would be revealed that everything in the tray cost about twice as much as they usually did. Uh, when the person Ooh. in the house obviously complained and said, why, why are you charging that much? Uh, the young boy would say, oh, it's the McKinley tariff, governor. I'm imagining them with a Cockney accent. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's driving all the prices up. Not my fault. I'm cutting my own throat. <laughs> That's quite clever. Oh, yeah, yeah. This worked. I mean, people started to, yeah. to really believe that the McKinley Tariff literally doubled the prices of everything, which wasn't true. Uh, prices yeah. were rising, but not that bad. Uh, yeah, it worked. McKinley lost his seat. Right. See, gerrymandering just annoys me. I mean, how that's still legal is ridiculous. But this one, yeah. 
oh no, I, I think this is just good politics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, terrible, lying through your teeth, but I like it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Got to admire it in a way. Yeah. So he's essentially out of politics now. You know, he's been in, on the national stage. Is now gone. Um, well, he, yes, but McKinley's got a plan uh, because he kind of realised there was a good chance he was going to lose his seat. Uh, so beforehand, he yeah. met with several prominent Ohioans. Ohioans? Ohioans? Ohio men. People from Ohio. People from Ohio. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, they were keen for him to run for governor. Uh, the, gov- the current governor was a Democrat who was up for re-election right. the following year. So they figure if we start pushing, we might be able to get McKinley into, uh, into the seat. Uh, so McKinley spent most of 91 campaigning and finding himself as popular as ever. Uh, he managed to win this by over 20,000 votes, which was a good chunk of wow. votes. Um, yeah. yeah, as we've seen before, being the governor in many states is a relatively powerless position, and it's the same in Ohio. If you remember Hayes' episode, he didn't really do much. He opened a couple of libraries, that's about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it's but it, it looks good. Um, and also, because yeah. Ohio was a swing state, and because three presidents had come from the states in recent years... Uh, the governor of Ohio was often talked about nationally. Can I, can I just interrupt you slightly? Um, everyone talks about swing states. Yeah. It's mentioned a lot in 2016. I'm not 100% sure that is. Oh. I assume they have more, more sway into the outcome because they have more representatives or something. It's, it's all about how many sure. parks they have and swing to slide ratio. Ah, well, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it does. So swing, <laughs> swing states uh, will change from uh, election to election, although generally roughly stay the same. Uh, you more see long periods of change. Obviously, with the Electoral College, different states just... Uh, people vote within the states, and the states put their Electoral College uh, votes forward based on, right. on those elections. Um, most states are a done deal, very much like in this country with the system we use. If you're in a safe Republican or a safe Democratic state, your vote is pretty much useless um, because your state will almost certainly be either Democratic or Republican. A swing state is the state where it's really close. It could go one way or the other. Now, what that means is realistically... Uh, the national election to elect a president usually revolves around just a handful of states where it could go one way or the other. Um, so that's right. why everyone puts all their campaign money into just the swing states. So if you live in a, a safe Republican state, no one's coming and campaigning near you because they know they've already got your vote. So um, at the moment, Florida is uh, one of the biggest swing states. Uh, which right. is why you hear of Florida a lot in recent elections, like the mm. one just gone and also Bush's one in 2000. Uh, whereas back in the days we're talking about, um, Ohio is a huge swing state. Uh, New York is the most important swing state because it's the biggest. Right. So, yeah. So there you go. That's, that's swing states for you. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's just a, a way to quickly point out that the... Um, Democracy is is completely flawed and broken in America. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> never mind, eh? Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Oh, well. <laughs> like I say, the easiest way to explain it is it's very similar to how it works in this country. Well, yeah, it's different different side of the same coin. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, anyway, Ohio swing state. 
that means the, that the next election, there will be a lot of time and effort spent by politicians and the press uh, looking at Ohio, um, looking at which direction it's going to go in. If you have right. a politician from a swing state running as president, it's more likely that state will vote for them. Ah. This is one of the reasons why in this time we suddenly have a whole bunch of people from Ohio becoming president because it's a swing state. Uh, also, <laughs> because they all know each other, so they give each other a leg up, like McKinley's being given yeah. a leg up by Hayes. Uh, so yeah, anyway, all fascinating stuff. Um, McKinley, now being governor of Ohio, is known nationally. He's talked about nationally, even though his job's not that important. It's seen as a bit of a stepping stone. If you're the governor of Ohio, right. it probably means you're going on to bigger things. So McKinley soon learnt the... Um, that the political hit the Republicans took in uh, 1890 uh, during the midterms was going to hit them again in 92, uh, because it seemed that Harrison was definitely going to lose. And it seemed that Cleveland was going to be put back in the White House. And sure enough, he was. However, things were looking bad for his party, but they were actually looking quite good for him personally. He was well-known and respected in the party by this point, uh, his name was even bandied about as a possible dark horse candidate against Cleveland in the election just gone. But that had gone nowhere. It, but it did prove that he's on the national scene now. Uh, anyway, once Cleveland became president for the second time, and it became clear that Harrison and Blaine were not the way to go anymore, uh, many in the Republicans started talking about McKinley for the 96 election, so the one in four years. Then the economy just completely collapsed. As we saw, oh, yes, remember that. As we saw in Cleveland's episode. Uh, and many people started to struggle more than they already were. Again, for McKinley, politically, this was fantastic news. Uh, people started losing their jobs. And, and he's the man of labour, isn't he? Well, he was able to sit back and just wait for people to start pointing out that... Well, hadn't it been McKinley who was saying that his tariffs were pre- protecting all the jobs? And... Then the economy had collapsed as soon as the Democrats had gotten in and removed those tariffs. All of a sudden, mm. I'm out of the job, and the man who said he was protecting my jobs, well, turns out he was right then, isn't he? Um, <laughs> now, uh, economies are hugely complex, and it very rarely makes a difference who the president is one day to the next for the economy. Uh, I mean, boom and bust is just bigger than who sits in the White House. On top of this, it's fairly clear that the Democrats did not cause the crash by lifting the tariffs, uh, and the Republicans cannot be fully blamed for um, crashing the economy by raising them either. It's just more complex than that. Uh, I mean, to try and put it simply, uh, as per usual, it was businesses overextending and banks being reckless with stocks and bonds uh, that caused the crash. Um, Obviously, this can be aided and abetted by governments, but yeah, uh, Yeah. this is why the economy crashed, really. Uh, But that doesn't matter. It's the perception that matters. And the perception was that the economy tanked just after the Democrats got in and changed the way things were ran. So uh, McKinley, with his history of protecting labourers, could... I mean, he wouldn't say this, but he could say, I told you so. And uh, because of that, he became ever more popular. Yeah, he, yeah, he oh, yeah. breezed through his governor re-election campaign, no problems at all. However, it was then that the uh, economic crash hit him. It hit him in a way there was no way he would have foreseen, however. He was doing fine financially, because um, uh, he was doing very well by this point, and 
as per usual, yeah. the people who are doing very well are usually fairly well insulated. Um, however, an old school friend of his had lent money to McKinley when they were younger. And ever since then, as a term favour, McKinley had been a, a guarantee in his friend's business. So, so I'm good for this money, and if it all falls through, my friend McKinley will, will foot the bill. Um, yeah. It's fine. Uh, McKinley was more than happy to do this. He was guaranteed for about $17,000, a, a huge sum back then, but he certainly could afford it. That was no problem. Uh, and yeah. he never expected to have to pay for it because it's his good friend. Um, his name was Robert Walkers, and Walkers was a good man. He's a good businessman. There's no reason why he's going to suddenly become bankrupt. Yeah. Walkers then went bankrupt because the economy had fallen apart. Uh, so he came to McKinley for payments, or at least uh, the people he owed money to did. And McKinley suddenly learnt that he in fact owed over $100,000 because his friend Ooh. had been a bit more than liberal with the truth. Even now that's a lot of money. It's close to $3 million today. I mean, McKinley Ooh. was doing well, but this this was enough to, to ruin him. Uh, it's just overnight, that's it. His career's gone. Everything's ruined, fallen apart. Uh, he told his friends that he was going to quit being the governor and go back to work as a lawyer and just try to work off his debt for the rest of his life, basically. Um, Ida had an estate inherited from her father that was worth $70,000. So a good chunk, 70% of that, of what was up. Yeah. Um, she put that forward to be used if needed, but obviously, ideally, they didn't want to get rid of their estate. No. Um However, in a display of how the rich elite operate in politics, uh, McKinley's friends decided uh, to help out, and they had a bit of a whip round. Oh. You know? It's like someone held out a hat, and it's like, God, McKinley's yeah. in trouble. You've got to spare 10000 You could just <laughs> pop in. Pop in, yeah. Uh, a little spare change. There's no indication, at least I certainly found none, uh, that any offices were sold um, or any dodgy dealings took place. So we can only assume it was through the goodness of people's hearts uh, that the money was soon <laughs> raised through donations. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Uh, maybe it was. <laughs> maybe it was. I mean, after all, <laughs> if you think about it, um, the American dream very much being pushed during this time, during the Gilded Time, uh, and the whole idea of the American dream did not look kindly on those who went bankrupt. Uh, because after all, if all you need to do to succeed is work hard, then going bankrupt must mean that you somehow didn't work hard enough. I mean, that's just self-evident. It therefore must be your own fault if you went bankrupt. Uh, however... That, that's the thing that's similar now, isn't it? It's like, if you, you're obviously poor, it's your own fault. Hashtag second gilded age. Yes, very much. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, however, uh, don't forget, McKinley hadn't gone bankrupt. He had been tricked by someone, nonetheless, who had not worked hard enough themselves to keep from going bankrupt. McKinley was the unfortunate party here. So, however it happened, McKinley found himself out of crippling debt almost as suddenly as he found himself in it as uh, friends and the Republican Party just made it all go away. <laughs> debt? What debt? <laughs> yeah, $100,000. We'll get rid of that for you. Yeah. That's not... So, there you go. I mean, in a way that's nice, because, I mean, it certainly wasn't in any way his fault, but there were countless people in the country during this time who were now 
in utter ruin due to no fault of their own. And they certainly didn't have that safety net. So no, absolutely. Uh, it's good to be in the political elite. That's for sure. It is. Yes. Yeah. Makes things easier. Yeah. Anyway, because he's now free from the debt, he's able to start thinking about running for president. It's not clear when he decides he's going to do this, uh, but it probably was around the time he started looking to become governor as a stepping stone. But it, 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 there's never a clear, obvious, right, I'm going to go for president. Uh, if he'd not before, however, by this point, he definitely is. Uh, now, to begin with, things look positive because he won the support of a man named Mark Hanna. Uh, we've not come across Hanna before. Uh, he's a, a robber baron type. He was uh, schoolmates with uh, John D. Rockefeller uh, and then went into business with his father-in-law and made millions before he was 40. And as per usual, then got into politics as a way of making sure the policies helped his business out. Of course. Yeah, he'd recently been leading leading a faction within the... Uh, Republican Party to get Sherman nominated. This is the brother to the General Sherman from the Civil War, uh, who we have come across before. Yeah, uh, Hannah was very anti-Blaine. He did not like the half-breeds. And he also supported the gold standard. Now, listeners might be surprised that I've not gone into the whole gold uh, and silver coinage issue uh, in this episode. Mm. But again, I feel like we covered it enough for you to understand what was going on with it in previous episodes. And we'll come back to that at a future time. But don't forget, a huge debate at the moment on whether to use the gold standard or use gold and silver. Um, Hannah, very much in the gold camp. Um, So he spent his time pushing to get Sherman elected, but this had failed in 84 and in 88, and Sherman was now too old to run. So Hannah swung his faction behind McKinley. Now, McKinley and Hannah had known each other and been friends for about 20 years at this point. They weren't strangers. And McKinley also had supported Sherman in the last convention. Soon enough, the Sherman supporters start looking at McKinley as Sherman's successor, as uh, someone they could get behind. Yeah. Now, this makes sense. McKinley's love of a high tariff to help industry, such as the ones Hannah and his faction happened to own, meant that he was well-liked in that group of people. I mean, Mm. yeah, high tariffs, you protect American workers, but you're also protecting, therefore, the American businesses and the American business owners. So Hannah becomes the full-time campaign manager for McKinley. Uh, McKinley directed the overall strategy, selected issues they'd run with, uh, and was very much the face of the campaign, whereas Hannah worked the back rooms, made the deals, yeah. smoked the cigars, uh, put together alliances. Uh, Very for example, uh, Blaine from Maine. Um, uh, Blaine from Maine was more of a, a front guy. Uh, Conkling was more of a backroom guy. Um Blaine from Maine kind of straddled both. He did backroom deals and he was the front guy as well. Whereas Conkling yeah. never ran really, never tried to push himself forward. He always wanted to be the man behind the throne. But yeah, very much yeah. like that. For example, in order to get the Eastern Party bosses on side, yeah. remember during this time the Republicans were uh, ran by party bosses in New York and Philadelphia, the likes of Conkling and Blaine that we've seen. Anyway, in order to get those party bosses on side, Hannah went over to see them and then came back to McKinley with the offer that was given. They'd said that the eastern states would support McKinley if local patronage was given over to them. In other words, once you're president, we get to decide who gets certain jobs in our states. Uh, We've seen this before with uh, Hayes and uh, Garfield, Arthur. Uh, However, McKinley refused. He's not going to do it. 
If he won, he was not going to be in the pocket of the bosses from the East. Fair enough. So he decides, no, I'm going to win this without the help of, of the party bosses. Then uh, Benjamin Harrison announced he wasn't going to uh, run again. So that was it. It seemed like a sure thing for McKinley. I mean, he was already the most popular man apart from Harrison. With no Harrison in his way, surely he's got this in the back. Uh, McKinley and Hannah had simply organised quicker than anyone else. When the Eastern Party bosses attempted to fill their own man after their deal fell through, uh, they sent out feelers throughout the rest of the country and found that Hannah and McKinley had gotten there first every single time and made their own deal. Uh, One of them said afterwards, and I quote, Hannah had the South practically solid before some of us even awakened. (laughs) So, yeah, there's a good solid political machine going on here. Uh, And because of that, the result was that for the first time since Grant, the Republican Party nominated someone who was not a last-minute compromise. If you think about everyone since Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, uh, Harrison, it's always been a dark horse or a compromise or a backdeal manoeuvre. But not this time. There was one. Yes, that's right. Count it one round of voting during the convention. That's never happened before. Um... I didn't think to check if it's ever happened before. I can't think of a time it happened off the top of my head. I mean, obviously, going back to the times of Washington and Adams, the political scene was so different back then, it's hard to uh, compare. But yeah, this is it's fairly unprecedented. So yeah, McKinley wins her pretty much hands down. And for once, the actual election itself is more interesting than the nomination, which is something I have found more and more fascinating as we've gone on. The the nomination (laughs) and the conventions tend to be more interesting than the actual election. It also explains, because I always did find it odd, I don't know if you're the same, in American politics, Mm. the two parties seem to spend most of their time tearing themselves apart during the nominations. And then at the end, a beaten and bruised candidate sort of staggers into the general election. And then suddenly they reverse all yeah. all opinions. That now let's support them, which just makes everyone sound hypocritical all the time. Yeah. Surely, surely you all need to back one person. Yeah, you you don't get in this country the same in politics uh, because the parties choose their own leader and just put them forward. There is no nomination process. So I mean, you've seen a bit with it uh, within uh, Labour and the Tories recently. Uh, in fact, the most we've ever seen in our lives, I'd argue. Um, but it's nothing, nowhere near on the same scale. You sort, you sort of de-ammunizing your frontrunner, aren't you? Yeah, it, and you're giving the opposition the the ammunition they need to attack because you've just said it all. It certainly uh, forces a weakness, but you could argue it's more democratic that way. But mm. it, it means everyone is really beaten up during the process. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But in this time, it really wasn't. McKinley just goes in and takes it. Uh, and then we go into the general election. Now, the Democrats, if you remember, have just nominated Brian. Brian. Brian, who I I was informed after I mentioned him last time. Uh, apparently, he is almost always given the three-name check of William Jennings Bryan. Everyone always talks about him as William Jennings Bryan. And after I was told this, okay. I have noticed, yeah, everyone always gives him the three-name check. Uh, I'm not doing that. He's Brian. Nope. Because yeah. that amuses me. Uh, it's just it's just Brian. <laughs> Brian was uh, only 36 years old. Uh, That's pretty young. That is very young. But he was gaining a lot of popularity after his famous Cross of Gold speech, which I mentioned uh, in the last episode. Right. He, he was known for being an excellent speaker. I mean, like, seriously good, next level. You know, like, almost 
a preacher who can convince you of anything kind of speaker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll quote uh, a bit of the Cross of Gold speech here. Having behind us all the commercial interests and the labouring interests and all the toiling masses, we shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labour this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. It's a God. fire and brimstone <laughs> revolutionary style talk. That's what yeah. this is. Uh, so, yeah, like, like I say, the debate for this election is... Uh, very much whether to keep the gold standard or go to silver and gold. The farmers, generally poorer, and wanted silver. If you remember, they wanted inflation because they wanted their debts to reduce. Uh, The silver mine owners wanted silver so they could sell their silver. Uh, Business owners generally wanted gold. Uh, Manufacturing would generally be safer and do better under a gold standard. Now, if you remember, the farmers' alliances sprang up. Do you remember talking about them? Yes. Yeah, uh, these were uh, coming from largely Republican areas who suddenly started saying to themselves, yeah, we've always voted Republican ever since the war, but we're poor and the Republicans keep propping up industry and not helping us out. We don't want to vote Democrats because we just don't do that. So maybe Farmers Alliance and a new popular party, a people's party, uh, and you start seeing the first what could be described as a left-wing movement rising up. Uh, Well, as we saw last episode, that then collapsed almost immediately, but the people in the Farmers' Alliances then tended to swing behind Brian, despite the fact he was a Democrat. He was very much seen as a radical Democrat, and people who didn't usually vote Democrats started thinking, okay, maybe even though he's a Democrat, maybe I'll vote for him. All of a sudden, for the first time ever, you've really got a genuine Labour voice in national politics. Like, McKinley is known for being behind Labour, but he's also accused of just being in the pocket big business, and you can see why. Brian was very much talking about really helping the common man. Uh, He was anti-imperialism, he was pro-the poor. Uh, A lot of people liked his message. Uh, The Republican Party, full of factory owners and bank owners, uh, (laughs) absolutely terrified. Absolutely terrified. So they pour a huge amount of money into the McKinley campaign. Uh, Hannah encouraged McKinley to try and match Brian's touring. Brian was touring all over the place, giving his excellent speeches and converting a lot of people. Uh, McKinley just refused to do this, though. In fact, I'll quote him, I might just as well set up a trapeze on my front lawn and compete with some professional athlete as go out speaking against Brian. I have to think when I speak. McKinley wasn't known for being bad at speeches, but realised he just wouldn't be able to stand up against Brian, so he just didn't didn't attempt to do it. Instead, he set up on his front porch and just said, anyone wants to come and talk to me, come and talk to me. And uh, sure enough, lots of important people went to talk to him, and they were covered in the press uh, in lots of detail with lots of pre-prepared statements that had been made. It was a very safe campaign from the Republicans. It sounds it. Yeah, uh, let's make sure no one says the wrong thing. Now, despite Brian's swelling popularity, most Democratic-leaning newspapers refused to back the new Democratic candidate because, obviously, the Democratic newspapers were owned by large business owners, and they didn't like yeah. this new radical Democrat coming along talking about how the poor people should, I don't know, be not so poor. So with the press against him uh, and him being seen as just a touch too radical by most, this led to McKinley finally winning with 51% of the vote to Brian's 48 in the popular vote. 
which translates right. to 271 Electoral College votes to 176. It, it was relatively close, considering Brian really did stand for something new. I mean, you can debate whether it would have worked or not, but Brian was mm-hmm. actually something new in politics at this point. Uh, he was- Which is... I, was that more unusual at the time? Because now something new is just not really heard of. It's just, you know, the same old people. Well, um, you could argue some politicians at the moment are trying to do something new. Um, they keep being defeated, very much like Brian. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. It, it, it does seem very similar to today's politics, this. Uh, it really yeah. does. Yeah, so McKinley gets it. Uh, he He wins. Uh, he is going to be the 25th president, leading arguably the most unified party since the war. Uh, so there mm. you go. He's president. Gosh. <laughs> Let's see how he does next time. There you go. Thoughts? Um, He seems well liked. He's got the backing of uh, the workers, which is important. I get it. Well, yeah, that maybe not. kind of um, starts but... to fall apart towards the end as people just say, no, you're just doing this for the big businesses rather than the workers. Yeah, it certainly helped. True. To begin with, and there is an argument put forth by some historians that no one but McKinley could have beaten Brian because he did have that history of housing workers. It blunted Brian's yeah. message slightly, uh, but yeah, uh, he doesn't seem like a, a bad guy, does he? I mean, we've had some awful people recently. He just, but at the same time, he doesn't seem amazing. He just seems like a no. He's plodding along. Yeah, he was in the right place at the right time and made connections and his life became very easy apart from the hideousness of his personal life where everything fell apart. Um, But yeah. Are we going to hear more from, is it Nancy? That was his mum, wasn't it? Ida, that was his wife. Oh, Ida. Do you want to say that again? Are we going to hear more from Ida? (laughs) Smooth, that sounded natural. I'm impressed. I'll edit that in, no problem. I'll ask it again. You can choose. Oh, don't worry, this whole thing's staying in now. Yeah. <laughs> a, a bit. Uh, we will see how her story goes. Uh, her story's a tragic one, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, that is, that's McKinley part one. That's the last time we see a president fighting in the uh, the Civil War as well. Oh, is it? Yes. Yeah, so it's goodbye to the Civil War. That stuck with us for a while, didn't it? Has, yeah. Yeah, but there you go. Civil War's over, officially. Bye, Civil War. Yeah, it's uh but don't worry, other things are coming up. I mean Yeah. We are, after all, in eighteen ninety-seven now. So uh yeah. Oh, we're touching the new millennium. We are touching the new uh, millennium. Century. Yeah, we don't worry, we get there next episode. We hit nineteen hundred oh. and it's no longer like real history in my mind, because everything post 1900s just like what happened a bit ago not real history yeah 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 that's true that's definitely true um right okay (laughs) but thank you very much for everyone who is listening if you are listening and you're up to date so you're listening to this during this time i hope you are well and everything is safe around you please leave the reviews keep leaving the reviews you're doing Uh, contact us on twitter and facebook that's keeping us entertained during the lockdown And, uh, yeah, and the only other thing that we really need to say then is uh, goodbye. Goodbye. Ah, Master Forager, details, please. We've got 
5,000 men very hungry out there. I hope you've managed to come up with something. Ah, well, uh, Lieutenant McKinley, lovely to see you. Well, I've I've been out with my wicker basket and I found a few items that I think would be splendid. Okay, right. Again, 5,000 men very hungry, so um, I don't want to alarm you, but we're running out of crackers. Oh, well, we're not going to have any of that manufactured food. We're going we're going organic. We're going natural here. So here, if you look at my basket, I found four and a half, little treat for you, four and a half mushrooms. Four, four, four and a half, half a mushroom? Yes. Forager, did you eat half of the mushroom on the way back? Well, that's neither here nor there. Just I, I saw the mushrooms, I picked them, and they were delicious. After all, I had to check if they were poisonous, but um, it's fine. Right, so, okay. So you have four and a half mushrooms that you're convinced aren't poisonous. Anything else at all, Forager? Well, yes, I, I walked around um, almost, almost 40, 40 feet, and I found this beautiful lichen adhered to this rock. It was sandstone, I believed. And I, I, I used my scraping to I scramp, scrape the lichen off. And here we go, we can have a lichen salad. That's, that's just some bits of what dust. This, this is a bit of a pebble. What, what is this? I can't eat this. I liken it to a good meal. <laughs> right, Forager, if the next thing you tell me isn't that you have a wagon load of oats or something out there, I'm not going to be best pleased. We've talked about this before. Well, you're quite lucky. I do have a wagon load. Of? Moss. 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 You can't eat moss, Forager. You can't digest moss, but you can certainly eat it. Look. Oh, just checking for poison again. Oh, we always wearing that hat. <laughs> Forager, are you, are you okay? Oh, I like the times I dig. You're foaming at the mouth, Forager. <laughs> Oh dear, this is just like last week all over again. Um, obviously the way the elections work in America is that... I just heard your cat. <laughs> From Monongahela Valley to the Masabi Iron Range Coal mines of Appalachia, stories always the same. Seven hundred tons of metal a day, sir, you tell me the world's changed. Once I made you rich enough, rich enough to forget my name.